Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of the Form 3.tech podcast. My name is Kevin Holditch, Head of Platform Engineering at Form 3. Today I'm really excited that I've been joined by Tarek Mares. Tarek is an uh, Engineering Manager at Klarna. How's it going today, Tarek? Hey Kevin, how are you? Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm good, thanks. Um, to get started, do you want to explain like what you what you do at Klarna? Yeah, sure. So as you mentioned, I'm an Engineering Manager at Klarna. I joined earlier this year. Um, and I'm part of the trust center. So basically it's a group of teams which is responsible for maintaining the trust of our customers, our partners, uh, regulators um, for Klarna basically. So this includes anything which is security um, based or related. It also covers things like maintaining the health of our integrations with our partners, um, making sure that the internal incident process is um, up to a specific standard that we're putting in place and so on. So essentially, a group of teams which is just working or focusing on this trust aspect. Okay, very cool. I know that you've got a lot of expertise in sort of data engineering and machine learning. I'm not sure how much that fits into what you're doing now, but I think it'd be really good to sort of take this as on a journey in, into, into those topics. So I think if you could give us an expert explanation on what data engineering is. Yeah, sure. So I think the definition can definitely differ based on the context that you have. Um, But basically, you can think about it as the engineering side of things when it comes to collecting data from your production environment, applying all sorts of transformations to make it ready for analysts so that they can start making sense of it, or preparing data for data scientists so that they can train their own models. And yeah, it could also be related to compliance purposes. For example, if you have auditors who would like to check the current state of affairs. So basically, it's the movement of huge amounts of data throughout your organizations um, to serve different purposes. And this platform, this core platform in between, that which is basically responsible for this, that's what mainly data engineers do. They build these kind of platforms. Okay, so can you sort of give me an example of like some tools or technologies or workflow that you would produce. So um, could an example be that we have data in one format and we need to manipulate it to get it into another standardized format for a team to consume? So if you had that problem, how would you sort of build a workflow? What are some, co- I mean, there's probably lots of choices out there, but what are some common, yeah. like some de facto choices you could use for that? Um, Sure. Let's, yeah, let's make an example of, for example, I don't know, order management systems. Like you collect different orders from different uh, providers and they have different formats. And we'd like to save this in a common format so that analysts, for example, would um, be able to apply some queries on top and check order statuses and like how much money we made today and so on. So for this to happen, you need to apply a transformation function which would be specific to each of these providers because probably the formatting is different um, when it comes to each provider. And then you apply this on a massive amount of data. So you need, first of all, some sort of a data pipelining tool. So you have multiple stages, the so-called DAG or uh, directed acyclic graph, for example, which uh, would be the first class citizen in tools like Airflow, Apache Airflow. Uh, so you have multiple tasks. These tasks would ingest the data, they read it in memory, you apply this transformation, and you save it elsewhere. Um, so one part is the orchestrator. One other part is the actual framework that does the computation. So you need some distributed framework to do this for you. For example, Apache Spark uh, would do this perfectly. 
and obviously a data storage system to read the data from and another storage system to write the new data to. Okay, okay, that makes, that makes a lot of sense. So has the sort of advances in cloud technology given data engineers more power in terms of the volume of data they can they can sort of compute because now you can sort of scale it out infinitely using presuming something like mm-hmm. Apache Spark you could run that on AWS and like is 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 that true and what kind is that open up more doors for data engineers definitely it did but it also came at a cost so the whole point uh, coming back to the um initial definition or like the, the whole point behind data engineering that the transformation or whatever pipeline you're trying to apply doesn't fit on your machine right so you need to scale this out on multiple machines and this is where tools like spark came in place the problem with that is the operational overhead so you need to maintain a tool like spark on i don't know hundreds of machines so there's a lot of devops work in place the good thing about cloud providers is they took away the operational overhead for you and they just provided you with the interface so that you can just plug in your pipeline so you can just say here's my definition of my pipeline here's the transformation function i'm trying to apply and here are the data sources you're going to use and that's it you don't really worry about how many machines are in place are they all up to date with a specific i don't know dependency versions um applying health checks and monitoring to make sure that they're all joining the cluster at some point because if some machines die you need i don't know uh, you need to make sure it's back uh, up within the cluster. If the leader dies, I mean, some tools like Kafka and Spark and so on, they have uh, much more complicated ways of handling leader management or leader election and so on. So basically the cloud provider um, or cloud providers in general, they take away this entire complexity from you and just give you the interface where you can apply your pipeline smoothly. Okay, that makes that makes a lot of sense. So it's kind of the equivalent that's happened in sort of other areas where the clouds, like if you want to run Kubernetes today, the cloud provider just give you a running cluster, they manage the control plane, they'll keep it running and you just deploy your workload. It's like the same thing's true for data engineering. Exactly. You become a Kubernetes user instead of a Kubernetes admin, and you can think of it the same way when it comes to data engineering okay. tools. So if we kind of build upon what you've just said about data engineering, so data engineering, I'm taking that to mean more about shaping data, moving data from one place to another, and maybe doing some computation on it. But when it comes to sort of understanding that data and making decisions on that data, is that really where machine learning differs from data engineering, would you say? Um, I think data engineering is a tool that aids scalable machine learning. So the point behind machine learning is you'd like to add a specific value to your product. So you have a specific business need and you're thinking about machine learning to fill in this business need. Data engineering comes in place if the amount of data you need to train your models are massive, so it doesn't really fit in one machine. And therefore you need an entire infrastructure to train your machine learning models. I think this is where it fits with data engineering. Okay, okay, I see. So then sort of focusing on machine learning, um, my only experience of machine learning, I went to a, a meetup probably six or seven years ago and they gave us this problem. I think this is like probably the 101, like the hello world problem for machine learning, which is given like the passenger manifest of the Titanic. The Titanic problem, yeah. <laughs> yeah, write a machine learning or program a machine to predict who died and who survived. Mm-hmm. So given that problem, could you talk through like, how you would approach that in the machine learning world? Like, what are the steps? Yeah, so 
in this specific case, I think it's it's way easier um, than applying things in like more on a production fashion because you can't fit the entire data set on your laptop, right? So, and I guess that's how you went about um, applying this problem or solving this problem. So first of all, you need a training data set uh, that you would use with a, a training model or a training algorithm, sorry. So you select some training algorithm, you apply the training data, and then you have an artifact, which is the model. The point behind this artifact is giving you predictions at the end of the day. So you can think of it as a function, you feed it some data, and then you get back uh, a specific prediction. So, so these say, are more or less the different aspects. Yeah. Sorry, just to ask you a question about that. So when you say training data, that's like given, say the passenger manifest of the Titanic was like 2,000 people. So given 500 mm -hmm. people, you know, which ones died and which ones survived. And maybe one was a child, one was a woman, one was a man. Um, and you know which yeah. ones and their ages, and you know which ones have died. Would you use that data to build your model, or do you basically feed that data into test your model to go, oh, the child survived, the man died, and make sure you. Um, so you can think of it as you have a specific set of features that you extract per person in this case. So you can have things like age, gender. Uh, maybe a social class because I remember the Titanic had like different levels and so on. Um, if they're accompanied by other family members or friends, so you, you have a specific set of features. Like for every person, you have a few numerical values, maybe Boolean values, and then you have a specific target. So they died or they survived, and then you feed in the um, the algorithm, the all of the the entire data set basically. I mean, you need to do some splits at the end to make sure that your model to check the accuracy of your model. So for the sake of the argument, let's say you take 90% of your data as training data and the remaining 10% as testing data. What happens here, you train your model and then you check, okay, on the testing data, on this remaining 10%, how did my model perform? Did it predict who's gonna die and who's gonna survive properly? Or you can still tweak things, like change parameters or change the algorithm itself and so on. Okay, and then you would, and then do you just go for an iteration then? So if you go, okay, well, my accuracy was 50%, so then I'm going to make some changes to my model and then test again. Is that kind of... Exactly. So uh, there the are tons of things you can do at this point. You can add more data. This is usually a good idea. You can change the actual algorithm that you're using. Maybe you need a more sophisticated algorithm if the problem is a, is a bit harder. Um, the actual splits might also differ. So now we did only two splits, but in reality, you probably do more. Um, so at this point, there are lots of tips and tricks that uh, machine learning people would do to get to the best possible outcome or the best possible um, algorithm on the testing data. Okay, okay, I see. And then when you say, I just want to focus a little bit on the algorithm because this is this feels like um, sort of voodoo magic to me because I hear this term like neural networks, which almost seems like uh, magic. So there's this famous example where Deep Mind trained, I think it was Alpha Alpha Go, Alpha Go program yeah. to play Go, which is a notoriously game where you can't really brute force it in the same way you can chess, mm -hmm. and it beat the world's best Go player, which they never thought was going to be possible because it kind of learned in a more human style way by just playing itself millions and millions and millions of times, and if it won, it kind of goes, well, that was a bit better, and if it lost, it said that was a bit worse. And it kind of learned, learned to play Go almost organically, if you like. There was no real programming. All they basically did was teach it how to train on it on its own, if you like. Where does that come in versus 
you know, if I was to naively implement the thing we've just talked about, I would kind of write an if statement to go, if child, they probably survived because someone rescued them. If man greater than this, they probably died because they were left on the boat till the end. So I'm just writing a bunch of if statements based on their attributes. Are there like two different slews of programming here? Like one is just like naive, how I would do it, like writing my if statements versus like what I think the magic way would be. Like it's almost like this black box. I didn't even know what's happening inside, but it's given me some magic answers. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I, I think the, 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 it's a very interesting question. And I think the right way to think about it is not necessarily from a programmatic point of view, because it's not really a set of if conditions. Some models or some classifiers would follow this approach, but the others, you can think of it as you're plotting your people, in this case, in the Titanic problem on a 2D uh, graph. And then most likely you will see with your eye that there is some decision boundary. There's some line that you can draw in and say, everyone below this line died, everyone above this line survived. If you cannot do this with your own eyes, most likely the algorithm won't be able to do that. So it's, it becomes more of a graph fitting problem at this case, only on a 2D, so two variables, like one variable and the target and the outcome. Um, or in this case, um, two variables. And then in, in, in when it comes to more variables, it's just an ND space where you try to, again, draw this decision plane, decision boundary. So it doesn't really become an if condition, more or less, like if this do that, or like more of a decision tree, but rather a mathematical problem where you can fit a specific curve and the algorithm would decide then who survived and who didn't based on this decision boundary. Okay, so is that... I'm just trying to unpack that. So is that more how a neural network works? Is there some kind of way you feed back in to tell it that was right? Yes. Uh, so, yeah. So uh, what I was talking about was the end result. How do you get there? So you can think of it as, um, or uh, the, 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 usually the example I, I, I tend to fall back to is a driving lesson. So it's the first time you're in a car and you're starting to drive and you do something. And then the teacher will tell you, oops, no, you shouldn't have done this. You should have done that. So there's a specific expectation, and then there's an error that you've made, and there's the discrepancy between both. So what you're trying to do is to bridge the gap between this error and try again. So you go through it again, and you try to get to this expected target or the, the right thing that should be done here. And you keep doing this a lot, and you tune your skill of driving until you know how to drive. Eventually, you realize, okay, I'm not doing any mistakes anymore, or the mistakes are minimal, so I probably gained that skill. Now I can actually drive. Same happens with whether it's neural networks or even the basic classifier and the Titanic uh, problem, I think they're equally, they follow the same exact approach. So the neural network or the algorithm in this case would make a prediction and would measure this against reality. What was the expected target? Measure the difference or the error made here and then feed back into the next iteration by doing a specific set of uh, tweaks or tuning in the parameters. So there are weights between the input and the output and you keep tweaking those weights until you get the, the expected um, outcome. So in this case, in the Titanic problem, you have 2,000 people, let's say, when you're training, you're, you're trying to reduce the error for the 2,000 people, right? So with every person, you make a specific error. So this person died, but they actually survived. So that's an error. So you propagate this down the entire data set and you try to reduce this with more iterations. Okay, I see. Um, yeah, I thought it was... Um it's really interesting sort of the doors that are going to open up in this area and it feels like we're only sort of scratching the surface so in the case of the um the go program mm -hmm. i know they then 
use that same algorithm and they taught it to play chess and chess is something mm-hmm. I'm quite passionate about and and it actually led to advances in the game because up until this point all of the chess computers were ever written were written in a naive approach where they basically took the value of the pieces tried to compute out as far as possible like 35 moves in the future and then pick the best path based on the outcome of the board in that position so it's more of a brute force approach with some um, like tree pruning if they thought okay well that way I'm getting checkmated so I won't do that move whereas when they taught the alpha program to play chess they just played it against itself millions and billions of times they didn't they had no preconceived ideas of, of what, what to do. And it started playing much more like a sort of super skilled human in terms of like making moves that computer never would have done, like sacrificing pieces and pawns because computers up until then had been very materialistic because they just counted up points. Um, so it's really, really interesting that this computer actually managed to blow away all of the other computers we've ever written because they... They didn't understand almost the essence of the position that the machine learning one had had understood. So I think it's really it's going to be really interesting to what doors sort of machine learning can open up. Is that is that the way you see it? And are there any other sort of examples you can think of of amazing advances? I think you mentioned a fascinating example because up till then, usually it's a single model for a single task. So a model would be able to solve at the Titanic problem, for example, and that's it. And then some people try to do this whole thing of transfer learning, but then within the same uh, field. So for example, computer vision, you train a specific model to see cars, but you do your best so that you can reuse the same model to start seeing humans and differentiate between different faces. So this idea of transfer learning, but then at the end of the day, it's still somewhat object recognition to a, to a specific degree. And then the interesting part about the AlphaGo and also the problem that you just mentioned is you're reaching a point where you can reuse the same exact model for different purposes. And this I find to be quite fascinating. And I think this is also part of the uh, promise or the hope towards general AI, where we'll be able to use very few set of models to solve multiple problems at once without the need to retrain a model for every single problem you encounter, which is to a great degree uh, the case currently. Yeah, so that opens up quite a sort of a philosophical argument doesn't it because at what point does that become like an artificial intelligence when you get a certain a few more steps down that road and then I think certain people are worried about what will happen when we invent a machine that that can that can sort of think to that level do you sort of Mm -hmm. share those concerns from being in the field or what are your thoughts on that so I did my fair share of academic work, like doing my postgrad studies, and usually the thought there is what we care about is more the scientific advancement. So if there's a way to work towards that, this is already an achievement. Um, Some people are working towards ethical AI, trying to make sure that this doesn't really blow up in our faces to some degree. And I think governments are putting in different laws to make sure that this also doesn't blow up. So personally, I don't necessarily share this concern. I think it's it will be heavy regulated eventually if it really reaches that point soon. I don't think I think it will take some time to get to that point where you have this general AI that can do everything. I don't think this will happen anytime soon. But again, this is just a personal opinion at this point. Uh, but with enough or with enough work on ethics of AI and with proper regulation, I don't 
I think it will be less controversial than people would think it might be. Okay, that that that's somewhat a little bit more a little bit more reassuring. Um, so I'm just going to pause there. Do you, is there any um, any other areas you feel feel like we should we should cover? Because yes, uh, so honestly, I, I I really like where the discussion is going, but I also thought we can talk a bit about um, how do you get machine learning models to production in general, like as an organization you have now you want to add machine learning to your product what do you what do you do how do you go about it this is something that i had in mind but yeah of course if you have any other ideas please please share them no, that's, that's really good i was kind of we just kind of got caught up going down that track and it felt like it's kind of reached a conclusion now so i think um yeah sure we start up another thread and if it makes sense to move this earlier on then we can we can do that for us okay so if an organization um, wants to add some machine learning to, to one of their products, like a good example I always give is yep. if you're a shopping website, I think Amazon famously made a lot of money by being able to recommend products that you might like given the product you're looking at. So how would you go about sort of launching something like that? What does it take to run a machine learning algorithm in production? Um, yeah, so that's a good question. So. It takes, first of all, you need to ask the question of whether you can solve this problem without machine learning. If there's an alternative that would require less hiring and operational effort to get to that point where you have a ready-made model that you can deploy to production. Because this comes with the complexity of hiring machine learning people, making sure that you have the right infrastructure in place so that they can train their models and lots of collaboration with the engineers to get to the point where you can bring value through machine learning to your product. So initially you need to ask this question. If the answer is yes, we want to give this a go. Um, first of all, you need, yeah, as we mentioned before, a data set that, or a few data sets for different problems. So if you can, if you have a data warehouse, you're collecting from your production databases, different data sets that could be used. This is a very important starting point because otherwise you cannot really train any models. And then, and that's where the data engineering comes in, sorry to interrupt exactly. you, you take that data, you need to get that into the format that the machine learning algorithm expects. Exactly. That might be coming from multiple places, you might have a data warehouse, you might have some events coming from somewhere, um, you know, a few different sources, you need to transform all those to a consistent format to feed them into your machine learning algorithm. Exactly, because at the end of the day, if we're using, if having machine learning, um, people, again, they don't really care about, I mean, sometimes they do the actual work of the pipelining, but what they care about is a ready-made data set that they can just use to train their models, right? So we want to make this as ready as possible. And then obviously the other question comes in, does this data fit on my machine? Or do I need some infrastructure that I can use to train those models in a distributed fashion? Uh, and how big the data set is? Is it a matter of gigabytes or terabytes? Um, how fast? do I want this model to be like maybe the training process would take a few days or it can take a few weeks based on what you're actually doing. So if you care about speed and you want to speed it up, probably you need to put in even a more complex infrastructure to get to that point where within a few days you have a ready-made model. So that's another point. And again, this comes with all sorts of operational uh, issues and complexities of setting up authentication, setting up the actual clusters, like all sorts of DevOps work you can imagine that can come along uh, when training those models. And then afterwards, once you're done, once you have this uh, model trained, you produce the artifact that you need to save it somewhere and most likely trigger some other pipeline to deploy this model 
in your product. So I assume you have an API that will serve those predictions. Uh, so you need to make sure that with every new model you train, you try this out somehow. And then finally, the last stage will be monitoring or the feedback loop. So now I have this model in production, it's serving customers. How do I know if it's doing what it's supposed to be doing? Is it good? Is it bad? Do I need to roll back or do I keep it as is? Okay, I just want to pick you up on a couple of points you made there. So this artifact you deploy, yeah, is that like, you can kind of think of that as like a, a, a static function that I'm going to call and it gives me an instant result. So going back to my example of like the Amazon product recommendation, if I'm looking at a pair of jeans, I just fire the pair of jeans in and straight away it would go, oh, you know, other customers have looked at this other pair of jeans. Exactly. Very similar to yeah. And it would almost instantly give me the answer. Is that kind of how it would work? It wouldn't like take 10 seconds to come back. It would be almost instant. If you have a very, yeah. So if you have a very complex model, so deep learning models tend to be slow. And that's why some people are just scared of having deep learning models in production because it can take 10 seconds to respond, which is um, not an option, I would say. So if you have a more basic model or a faster model, then yes, it should take a few milliseconds and come back with a set of predictions. So then I guess the trade-off there is it might not be quite as good as the deep learning algorithm. Exactly. So it's speed versus accuracy at this point. Okay. Or you can also have your predictions. You can do some predictions offline and then it becomes a matter of a lookup table that you just, for this item, give me more items. Uh, which are relevant somehow. So we don't even need to call the model ah, online. Interesting. So you're basically saying there's two approaches. So we could live, as I hit the page, call the machine learning. Another approach could be, I've got a thousand products on my website. Exactly. Run them all through the algorithm, upfront, offline. And then if you're on this page, this is the recommendation. On that page, that's the recommendation. It's just instant lookup then. And then I suppose I could have used my deep learning model because if it takes 10 seconds, it doesn't matter. It can take as much as you want. Exactly. I mean, this would come with another problem that you need to solve is how often do you update this lookup table? Because if you're having items coming in every day, most likely you need to retrain the model every day and update the lookup table accordingly. So it's always yeah, a trade-off. It swings roundabouts, isn't it? Because now I've got increased complexity with trying to rebuild this table, feed it back around again, um, versus maybe slightly more accuracy. Exactly. So that there's trade-offs. Um, Okay, and I also wanted to question about the feedback loop. So typically, would like the the, mach, the machine learning person who built this model, would they basically, as a human, look through the predictions and then try and remove any errors? Because say I was looking at a man browsing a clothes website, let's just say, and I'm looking at jeans and shirts, and then suddenly it recommends a dress. And I'd be like, yeah, there's no way I'm, I'm going to buy a dress. I'm, I'm here for men's clothing, as an example. Um, would the machine learning person look through and go, oh, that was definitely a, an outline prediction there and try and work out why the dress came up when I looked at three pairs of jeans and a t-shirt and then tweak the algorithm to try and remove the dress? Is that something they do? do? They go through that process? So there are multiple ways to do this. So first of all, you can set a few monitors in place as if you're adding health checks to a service that you're deploying, you can do the same to a, uh, to a model, machine learning model that you're deploying. And you can check things like the distribution of the output uh, compared to the input. You can check things like um, the confidence scores. So every model would give you some, I mean, some algorithms at least would tell you, I'm X percent sure that this prediction is correct. You can also check these and see what are the, um, have some dashboards that would tell you how the model is doing. One other thing that you can do is checking business metrics. So in this case, for example, we care about conversion. So how many people actually did orders? 
and whether this um, recommendation system did any good uh, to increase this uh, this value this metric. So you can apply this either through an A-B test uh, or you can, as you said, you can do some sort of a qualitative uh, approach where you just get predictions, a few predictions and eyeball them and see, does this make any sense? Obviously, this is not really scalable. So I think this tends to be more of an option if the amount of data you have is much less and you, you have the capacity to do so. But otherwise, the automated approach would mainly be looking at metrics um, and doing some A-B tests and see uh, where things fall. One other approach that you can also do is checking the prediction versus reality. So let's say I'm predicting that Kevin today would uh, buy with X amount of dollars uh, on our website, and then he ends up buying with Y. And I can check these against each other and see, okay, what was the actual error for all of our users today and see how far the model is, the forecasting model is, for example, from reality. So there are multiple ways to go about it in this case. Okay, yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. That's about all we have time for today. Thanks a lot for joining me today, Tarek. It's been really good having you on the show. Thanks, Kevin. It's been a pleasure. Form 3 are looking to double the size of our remote-first engineering team. If you'd like to help the world move money faster and enjoy working on complex technical challenges using the latest tech, feel free to check out the careers page in the description.